and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Now, uh, I will be welcoming a great guest onto the program here in a minute, but let me do a song and dance for Counterpunch, both song and dance. Um, But you won't see me dancing, nor will you hear me singing. But Counterpunch, the print magazine, such an important thing. I, um, I will tell you, just the other day I was laughing to myself at the uh the the cover art on the most recent uh issue or one of the most recent issues and and just thinking I can't think of another web uh, another website and another publication that has as much original artwork and original you know aesthetic quality as Counterpunch. Frankly, I mean, and I'm not going to name all the names, but just think about all of the various alternative and pseudo alternative media outlets. How many of them actually take the time to have an artistic layout? How many of them actually take the time to print a legitimate print publication? Uh, almost none of them. And so in many ways, Counterpunch, once again, really stands apart from the crowd. Support Counterpunch. Get that subscription to the print magazine. It's well worth it. You'll be glad that you did. You can also, of course, support this podcast by giving us a positive review on iTunes. Or if you don't want to do it there, just send us around to your friends. Share it on Twitter, on Facebook, or what whatever. Um, building a following for this show is really what I care about most most of all because I feel like there's a lot of uh, issues, a lot of information that people don't discuss in depth, and I hope that this is one of those forums where people can do that. So hopefully, uh, if you like this show, if you're interested in supporting it, you'll uh, spread the word. Anyway, uh, let me turn to my guest this week. I'm very happy to be able to welcome Andrew Smolsky to the program. He's a regular contributor to Counterpunch. His stuff is up all the time, both in the print magazine and on the website recently uh he's written about some u.s politics he's written about mexico human rights issues and a whole lot more he's a writer and a sociologist i'm very happy to have him on the show andrew smolsky welcome to counterpunch radio thank you so much eric for having me i'm I'm really happy to participate uh so let's let's jump right into it because there's a lot to cover on an issue that seemingly should be, you know, really well covered. And frankly, it's not. I think most media outlets, including in the alternative media, really drop the ball when it comes to Mexico and providing, I think, the necessary context and even just the coverage for what's really happening. So why don't we start there and tell us just in, you know, as a general sense What's going on in Mexico right now, and what are the relevant issues that you've been looking at that you think really deserve careful analysis? Well, I think the main thing that gets missed when we talk about Mexico is historical context. And what I mean by that is we have to understand Mexico from the 80s to the present as kind of following a certain trend. And that trend can be summed up in, you know, the offset left word neoliberalism. And what that really means, right, are these structural adjustment programs. And so post 82, right, post this oil bubble burst in Mexico, when they're indebted largely to private financial institutions in the United States, the government begins passing these privatization and market liberalization reforms. Uh, These culminate, right, in what the United States uh, and the citizens here really think about in NAFTA. But for Mexico, this begins 82 on to that 1994 date. And when you're doing these privatizations and market liberalizations, what we're really talking about is reducing the, the provision of social services to the population through the state. So things like the telecommunications industry, which was nationalized, uh, become privatized. And that you know, gets given basically as a gift to Carlos Slim. So he takes over Telmex and gets really rich. And that's, you know, that basic Marxian concept of enclosure. So what these structural adjustment programs are doing is they're taking stuff that's held in common or at least publicly owned, privatizing it and turning it into a profitable vehicle, a commodity. So to think about why Mexico is the way that it is today and the violence that we're seeing today is to understand that that process went on, that all of this social wealth is taken and privatized and given over to basically transnational capital, you know, in the form of domestic elite, in the form of international elites, 
but in the end, always in the guise of kind of transnational capital and under the auspices of U.S.-backed economic policy. That's what NAFTA is. That's what the structural adjustment programs are. You know, if it's the IMF and the World Bank saying it, it's still coming principally from U.S. institutions. So I think that historical context is always key and, and not like technically missing, but in a lot of ways not brought in the proper context. So understanding violence is to understand economic violence is driving criminal violence and driving the corruption. I think that that's the first major point. And so what we see, right, when we take in these structural adjustment programs is, you know, an initial drop in the poverty rate. You know, and, and the reason why is, you know, you kind of can fake what the foreign direct investment's doing. So there's this initial flood of money, right, that kind of covers over the loss of all the social wealth. Well, as that kind of effect begins to wade coming into the, the mid 2000s, so 2006, what then starts to ramp up is the militarization. So, you know, the economy is stagnating. It's starting to only grow at 2%. And in order to deal with the fact that it's stagnating and in order to kind of find a culprit, you have basically the drug war gets the, the limelight. And, and so you have these structural adjustments programs that are getting implemented. And in order to be, continue implementing them with the resistance that's there, you have to militarize the population uh, as well as finding a scapegoat. And that scapegoat is, oh, well, you know, the real problem with this country isn't, you know, the, the poverty. It's not the endemic deprivation. It's not the fact that our informal economy has exploded and now encompasses, you know, almost 50 percent of the labor force. No, it's none of that. It's these cartels who up until the drug war had kind of already had their slice of territory and were basically doing their own thing and not really warring with each other. Right. And this is, uh, in a lot of ways, what we can call Don Paley's argument. Her main thesis in her book, Drug War Capitalism, is that, you know, in order for capital to continue this expansion through Mexico, you needed these militaristic policies. So these enclosures themselves are, you know, being pushed forward by the violence. And when the alternative media is talking about it, they're not giving it that, you know, Marxist spin, that anarchist spin about how the state you know, utilizes and legitimates itself through violence. They're not talking about how, you know, enclosures drive human rights abuses. What they're really saying and reverting back to is what I call kind of the crime and corruption narrative. And that crime and corruption narrative, is, what it does is it obfuscates the, the role played by the federal elite in Mexico. It, it also kind of takes away the role played by the United States in Mexico through the Merida Initiative, through the money it sends, you know, anywhere between 100 to $300 million a year in order to arm and, and train Mexican troops. It uh, doesn't talk about ever the 700 to $1.2 billion in arms authorizations that are going down there. What it does is it just says, oh, you know, there's this horrible conflict. And it is, you know, I mean, it's rather horrific when people are hanging decapitated from bridges. But that thing is never placed in context. And so what you need to do is historicize it, economize it, politicize it, and then figure out, you know, through those different perspectives, what's the best way to go forward after that? Understanding that the enclosures are a result of this militarization and they themselves are a result of kind of this giant U.S.-backed process of privatization. Well, there's no doubt. There's a lot there. I want to try to unpack that piece by piece because I think that um, – some people who might not have the background in this might be a little bit, you know, their eyes might be glazing over, their ears, as it were, might be glazing over a little. So let's go point by point. Number one that I wanna that I wanna touch on, and you were alluding to this a little bit, this question of NAFTA and free trade and the impact that that had on the course of uh, both political and economic development in Mexico, and specifically one aspect of that is the role that U.S. Uh, agriculture cultural exports have played in completely decimating the rural peasantry in Mexico, forcing many of them to make very difficult decisions, some of which led to migration to the United States, some of which led to organized crime and a whole host of other uh, sectors of the economy that these people have fled to. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that and, and whether you see that as one of the, uh, let's say, jumping off points for some of these developments? So uh, 
it plays a, a huge role in terms of the negative effects of NAFTA, right? So what NAFTA allows is basically U.S. subsidies of U.S. agribusiness to remain in place while forcing Mexican peasants to compete against that giant subsidized system. And you, know, you have large rural population, not, not as large as it used to be. I mean, Mexico's rural population had shrunk considerably post-World War II, uh, going through the same process of urbanization that kind of happened worldwide. Uh, and this accelerates, right? It accelerates after NAFTA because, as you pointed out, and correctly so, it decimates Mexican agriculture, especially peasant-based subsistence agriculture. They can no longer compete with these large corporations. And that drives this uh, immigration situation. And, you know, oddly enough, in thinking of it in terms of those enclosures, right, it's saying that these people who were able to, to produce their own food are no longer able to. They, they've been enclosed. They now have to become wage laborers. So they come to the United States where they now do exactly what they were doing, you know, back home in many cases, except in, in more exploitative conditions for less money and, and for a wage for a transnational corporation or a national-based grower of some kind. So NAFTA really drives that whole dynamic. And then, as you also pointed out, and correctly once again, is that it produces this lumpen effect, right? Because not everybody is going across the border to now uh, pick food in the U.S. agriculture sector or work in the construction sector, etc. Some of them remain. And those that remain uh, still don't have access to jobs in any real sense because, as I pointed out, the informal uh, sector expanded, not the formal employment sector after these privatizations went on. Because much of the employment uh, in Mexico had been through the state and state control of all these industries. So they don't have formal employment. And then also adding to this mix is the fact that, well, there was still farmland there. So cartels are able to go in and then begin utilizing that farmland to produce the drugs. So you have a lumpen proletariat that is produced from these policies as people aren't able to access formal employment anymore. You also have the feral farmland that's now being occupied in order to grow these drugs. And then you have the enclosure that, that happens, and then therefore the proletarianization of once peasant populations and peasant agriculture as they immigrate to the United States or continue now to work for transnational growers in Mexico. Absolutely right. And now the other aspect of that you um, kind of were touching on in your initial comment that I want to highlight for people, you mentioned the Merida Initiative. And the Merida Initiative is very important both because it is the 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 uh, infusion of massive amounts of American cash uh, in the form of weapons, in the form of uh, mercenary companies that provide training and assistance to the local law enforcement, to federal uh, agencies in Mexico, um, you know, the hardware and all of that that comes with that. But at the same time, this is also part of a broader initiative by the United States, which includes includes Central America, the militarization of the authority of the uh, of the state in Honduras, the militarization under the so-called Project Colombia in you know in Colombia, of course, the so-called drug war. Mexico figures centrally in that, both as a supplier, but also as this critical transit point. And so, part of what's happened is that the militarization is part of this much larger process of creating the 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 infrastructure structure of this profit-generating drug system? Well, uh, Plan Colombia was the, the basic framework for the Media Initiative, which is why, uh, as your guest, uh, Laura Carlson, and I recommend everybody go back uh, and listen to her episode on Counterpunch Radio as well to get more context, as um, she pointed out in an article for the Americas program a while back, Plan Mexico, or Media Initiative, was basically just Plan Colombia repackaged now. Exactly. Yep. Plan Colombia is now called Peace Colombia because <laughs> now they've went through the peace process. However, you know, the ceasefire, actually, it's not a, a peace agreement. So they have the ceasefire and now Peace Colombia, but and and continuing with what you were pointing out, this is still about militarization, it's still about the maintenance of military bases. It's still about the maintenance of the paramilitary forces of the state within these countries, along with the military connections, because that's what is really valuable, right? We saw that in Egypt, actually, that 
the United States didn't have to worry about losing Mubarak because they had the connections to the military. Same in the, you know, Mexico, they have connections to the military. So it's not, a, you know, a problem if they lose the, the formal representative framework of the state because those connections with the military are maintained. Maintained in Honduras, maintained in El Salvador, maintained in Guatemala, you know, continuing into the present. And that's a long trend, what, you know, 70 years more so, you know, you could really say since the Monroe Doctrine, but at least 70 years of this kind of really brutal policy in Central and South America from the United States, where you militarize governments and, you know, repress dissent. Absolutely. And then the final uh, piece that I want to bring in before we start touching on some of the uh, social conflicts that we're seeing now and that you were you were touching on earlier as well is, is privatization, right? The privatization uh, in it for purposes of exploiting the energy sector, bringing in fracking, uh, seizing land for the purposes of generating wealth for a tiny, tiny oligarchy that is that is really benefiting from this. And that is really one of the central issues that is driving a lot of the activism that's going on in Mexico. And it's the activism that really, I think, is is important to highlight because a lot of the violence, a lot of the really uh, awful and brutal repression that we've seen has been around activism that is spurred on by this privatization push. Most definitely. These privatizations are direct attacks uh, on much of the history of the Mexican Revolution and what the revolution, uh, along with uh, Lazaro Cardenas, uh, bequeathed to the Mexican people, that the Mexican people won. Maybe that's a better way to put it, is that the Mexican people won this with the Mexican Revolution. And that's, say, like the Hilo system, which is a system of collective land rights um, that the indigenous and also mestizo populations were able to to employ in order to make sure that they got rights, you know, agrarian reform, which was so key to 20th century struggles. And so when you say like, you know, the activism is is fighting back against this, that's because when they're coming in to frack or something, they're really trying to, you know, displace people in order to do that. And what they're displacing people from is typically the Sahidal land, which uh, was privatized to a certain extent by laws passed by Carlos Salinas de Gotari which was leading up to NAFTA, which is one of the main reasons, right, that the Zapatistas, you know, rise up. The reason why they rise up is because there was a direct attack on the Hilo system when Salinas said, now people can sell this land. Beforehand, you couldn't sell this land. So you have, you know, a slump coming in, you know, poverty is going up to 60 plus percent. And what does Salinas do? He says, no, we're going to privatize the collective land. And that history has remained. We see this with massive struggles. So a pipeline going through Morelos. I forget the, exa- uh, the exact town at the moment, but, you know, organized ejidos, which were these collective, as I pointed out, land, um, collective land ownership, uh, have been able to mobilize against these things. But, you know, facing pretty brutal repression every time they do so, but continuing to rise up. And, and the interesting part about that is, and something for like a socialist like me, is that you know the maintenance of these collective institutions has made sure that there's been a bulwark against even more brutal repression or even more brutal privatization because the Mexican government knows that they will face resistance. So they've had to do this piecemeal. That's why I say, for instance, oil privatization has taken so long for the government to do, even though they've been you know salivating over it since you know Salinas de Gotari won in 1988. I think I hope I answered your question on that one. I kind of went off on the heroes. No, yeah, that that that's right. And and the reason I bring it up in that context is so that people understand the importance of the kind of activism that goes on in Mexico. So when we talk about the uh, the Ayotzinapa, the 43 missing uh, uh, teachers, what we are really referring to is not just an isolated incident, but rather an example of the kind of violence and brutality and repression that is meted out on those who do directly stand in the way of these privatization drives. Oh, definitely. Well, and you think about the 43 students, right? So where do they come from? Well, they come from the, the Escuelas Rurales Normales, right? So the normal schools, which are themselves, uh, you know, what the people won after the Mexican Revolution. Rural areas needed teachers. They won the right to these schools. 
They won the public investment into them. So those students that were at that school were, you know, in that tradition, that historical tradition of political struggle, one that has great actors in it, like uh, not actors in the sense of like Hollywood, but people that are, you know, affecting reality, trying to change it. Uh, Lucio Cabañas, who went to that school, the Yotzinapa, the rural, um, the, oh man, Isidro de, de Burgos, uh, de Yotzinapa. So that's the, I think I said it right. But Lucio Cabañas came from that exact school. And so he's a, a revolutionary figure in the 60s and 70s that launched then an attack against basically the Mexican government for its failure to continue to provide what the Mexican Revolution had stated should be provided to the people in things like the Plan de Ayala de Zapata, which wasn't adopted, but you know was a guiding set of principles for what we were supposed to achieve or what they were supposed to achieve. And so those students are directly in line with that tradition, a tradition that the Mexican government has tried to snuff out and continues to try and snuff out. Although this direct repression in the case of Ayotzinapa doesn't seem to be linked to political motive on the, the part of the state. It seems to be linked directly to a drug war motive, right? So the state was involved, the military was involved, but it was, you know, a matter of the drug war. It appears what the fifth bus, as Carlson was pointing out, was filled with heroin uh, and was a shipment headed to the United States, right? I believe that's what she was saying. Well, that's yeah, what, so there's, there's, yeah, and there's a question about whether or not what was what really happened there was that they got in the way of this, um, basically this heroin pipeline from Mexico stretching directly to Chicago, and uh, whether or not that uh, you know what happened to the missing the missing students was uh, basically an attempt by a cartel to get them out of the way of their shipment, and then simultaneously attempt by the state to cover up their own complicity in this, because there's obvious corruption at the local level, and there's a question about whether that corruption goes much higher than just the local officials who took the fall for it. Well, and that's, you know, and the article that I, I hope gets published in the next issue of Counterpunch I'm focusing on is the fact that the way the New York Times, for instance, frames this, the, the 43 students incident or massacre, basically, and kidnapping is by, you know, putting all the blame just on local or state level officials and avoiding what is most likely the complicity of national level officials. And we know that, you know, they've been involved uh, in the drug trade directly, some of them. Uh, we also know that the national government has, you know, negotiated with different cartels in order to, you know, kind of pick which ones they thought were more, I don't know, subservient, maybe that's not the right word, better partners in maintaining the Mexican state as it is. And that's really, I think, a key thing to understand is that when you're reading, say, corporate media of any kind about Mexico is why don't they ever say something like, why doesn't the federal president, you know, Enrique Peña Nieto resign or, you know, how much corruption is involved at the federal level? How much do national political parties know about what their local members are doing? We know that the Pedrere knew more or less that Luis Abarca in Iguala, the mayor of Iguala, was corrupt and involved with Guerreros Unidos, the cartel that is still largely implicated in disappearing the students along with the federal police and possibly the military. So, you know, that's what the New York Times is supposed to be doing. You know, they have all this money and they're supposed to be doing investigative reporting and they don't do any of that. The farthest reaching that you'll get in terms of criticism is, you know, there was the, the White House incident in Mexico where his telenovela wife has apparently purchased this house with her salary from that. But he, they got it from a, a financial group that was getting contracts from the Mexican government. That's like the, the extent, but never saying, you know, that the government's directly involved and then therefore also directly involved in political repression through this. Well, yeah, and again, I mean, it it also obviously calls into question not just uh, you know the, the the president himself, but his own legitimacy, because you know we we have a lot of very good evidence, including firsthand um, accounts from people who say that that election was stolen completely, right? Including um, what's his name, Alvarado? I, I forget, or Maldonado? I forget what the guy's name was. Who is that? Uh, that hacker who. Basically 
basically admitted that he stole the Mexican election for Peña Nieto. There's a lot of uncomfortable questions that come to the surface for a key U.S. ally and a key Obama administration ally when you start questioning the criminality of Mexico's government all the way to the top. Yeah, so recently in Proceso, which is the, I would consider it, the leading investigative reporting magazine in Mexico, uh, has had this expose on the fact that, you know, the corruption goes to the point where Felipe Calderón, who was the president from 2006 to 2012, he was from the PAN party, the National Action Party, uh, had a deal basically from 2006 election with Enrique Peña Nieto, who was at the time going to be governor of the Estado de México, so Mexico State, which surrounds Mexico City, um, that they made a pact basically to support each other, uh, to make sure that both of them get elected, even though they're from opposing political parties, had made a pact uh, to do this. And there's, you know, quite good evidence showing that that's the case. So, not only do they have, you know, possibly hackers involved, there's definitely, you know, the normal vote buying, the giving of Soriana cards, but even up to, you know, political officials making pacts across parties. And Proceso says that, you know, this pact extends to now the 2018 election with Zelaya, Felipe Calderon's wife, um, now in kind of supposed to be kind of put forward as the person to win for 2018, especially as they try and unite against AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who's been kind of the the ongoing left establishment candidate now with the party called Morena, which means brown skin. So it's supposed to be about brown pride. Um, he's running an election campaign again. And so what they'll do is they'll try and group up to make sure that even the establishment center left has no shot at power. So it, it's it's ongoing. And as uh, Carlson's pointed out, and I mean, I, I hope people go and look into this. You know, elections have been stolen uh, twice before that we know of in Mexico. Uh, the big, big one was in 1988 when um, Cardenas' son, Cuauhtémoc Cardenas, uh, in the newly formed PRD, so the Partido de uh, the Democratic Revolutionary Party or Party of the Democratic Revolution, uh, was running for president. They had just developed this party. And the moment uh, that, you know, the tallies being brought in, all of a sudden, the machines go down. And when they come back up, Carlos Salinas de Gotari of the Institutional Revolutionary Party has won. In 2006, it was 0.56% of the vote. Uh, actually, the pact that they were talking about between Calderón and Peña Nieto covers roughly 200,000 votes, which goes more or less along with the 0.56%. Yep. That, that's exactly right. All right, uh, let's take a break. And um, on the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in Oaxaca right now. Um, there's a historical uh, reason why we want to pay attention to Oaxaca in recent history and in what's happening there today, because it obviously relates to what we're talking about and a few other topics I want to touch on. So anyway, stick with us. I'm chatting with Andrew Smolsky. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We will be right back.
back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Andrew Smolsky. You should read his work. He's a regular contributor at Counterpunch, including in the print magazine. He's a writer, a sociologist, um, excellent, excellent resource on a lot of the inner workings of uh, Mexican politics. And well, maybe not inner workings. That's not the right way to say it, but of the machinations of uh, Mexican political issues and actually generally what's going on south of the border, which obviously is directly related to everything that the United States is doing. The U.S. plays a central role in everything that goes on in in, in Mexico and in Central America generally, which is part of the reason why we want to uh, make sure that we pay attention to it. Now, before the break, uh, Andy, I was mentioning Oaxaca, and we have very interesting developments there just in, you know, the last couple of weeks. So uh, just starting from there, can you give us a little bit of background about what's going on there? Um, what are the issues in play and uh, who are the main actors? Okay, so we can start from basically um, the beginning in terms of 2012. So let's start from 2012. So 2012, Enrique Peña Nieto gets elected in Mexico, and he begins what he calls the Pacto por México. And in this Pacto por México, the three main parties join up, uh, the PRI, the PAN, and the PRD, and they decide to initiate uh, several structural reforms. One of the principal reforms that they were focused on doing was an education reform. This education reform follows basically the model of education reform in the United States, and that means that it is uh, aimed primarily at breaking teacher union power and largely producing an evaluation system while not addressing any of the actual problems really with the education system in Mexico, like poor levels of investment, the fact that many schools don't have infrastructure. Uh, a report just came out on Mexican uh, schools that five out of 10 don't have access to all basic services. 7.7% of them don't even have electricity. So it doesn't address any of that. It's just really addressing this idea that, well, if we evaluate teachers and maybe we incentivize them, so this you know, neoclassical economic idea of always having to incentivize. And, and so because they're optimize, optimizing their economic efficiency, they'll be better teachers. Uh, and it also then standardizes education. It standardizes education in a country where Indigenous movements have been fighting for you know, decades to get a, a pluralistic education out there, not one merely you know, constraining people basically to the market and to market functions and getting a job. So this reform, right, this education reform comes about in 2012 and 2013. And that's when this fight really starts between the CNTE uh, in Spanish, the Coordinadora Nacional de Trabajadores de la Educación, or in English, we can well, the National Coordinator of Education Workers. And this is the dissident union in Mexico, the dissident teachers union. There is an even larger teachers union, the Sindicato Nacional de Trabajadores de, Educa de la Educación, so the National Union of Education Workers. However, that union, um, I think in the words of Paco Ignacio Taibo, you would call it a yellow union. So, you know, it's highly linked to, you know, concentrated centers of power, um, was integral to the winning of PAN, integral even to the winning, they say, of PRI in 2012. So this dissident union broke off from that, that union um, a couple of decades back and has been leading the fight against these education reforms, reforms that themselves have a longer history than just this 2012 reform, uh, there was an original battle in Oaxaca by the teachers against education reforms in 2005 and 2006. Uh, so this isn't anything new as well. And this fight has been waged all across Mexico. So it's not just restricted to Oaxaca. The teachers from the CNT have blocked roadways in Mexico City and set up encampments in Mexico City They're going on now for two to three years. And so this Oaxaca incident is just another ongoing event in this ongoing battle. Right. And the the other point that I think is 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 really significant and should be brought out uh, matter of fact should be brought out even more in conversations on this subject is the relationship between the privatization push in terms of education in Mexico 
to that that we see in the United States. And there is a uh, there, there, there is an ideological sort of background to that, right? That is the creation of a, a market upon which uh, profit can be made that can be capitalized on a so-called untapped market, the, cre- the, the erosion of all of the sectors of the economy where public sector unions are particularly strong and transforming it, not just into profit generating mechanism, but a demobilized, deunionized labor force. I think that that is critical as well here. And obviously this fits into what we were talking about earlier with neoliberalism. So in fact, what you see happening in the U.S. is being exported around the world, you know, in Mexico, but not exclusive to Mexico and not exclusive even to Latin America. We see it similarly all over the world. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even in the bastions, you know, in the minds of many on the American left of the Scandinavian countries, this privatization has been going forward. Uh, And this specific one is actually the result of policies coming out of the OCDE, right? The Organization for Cooperation and Economic Development. So all the large industrialized nations of which Mexico counts itself a part. This policy comes from there. What does that institution push in terms of policy, neoliberalization of the economy, right? Free market access, which really doesn't mean anything to do with free markets, of course. Free markets themselves are largely a myth because markets, at least in our society, are institutionalized by the state. So having a free market without the state under capitalism is kind of a bogus idea. And then uh, part of that is also the reduction of union power, right? Because if there's union power, then there's somebody that can demand wages. And if somebody's demanding wages, they're probably also demanding public investment in education. And if they're doing that, that means an expansion of social services, which is directly contrary to any idea that the transnational elite has uh, at this moment in time for public policy. I mean, that's just not even a part of the mix. And so, you know, what would be really cool, right, if you could think about it is massive solidarity networks between, say, Chicago teachers uh, and the CNTE and teachers in Guatemala and teachers, you know, around the world, recognizing that they have this shared struggle against that neoliberalization. Well, that's right. And actually, um, that's something that's been discussed on this show uh, a number of months ago. I had Gia Lee on this program. She is uh, she is the leader of the Moore Caucus here in New York City, which is the movement of rank and file educators. They are essentially an insurgency within a union that is deeply reactionary. The UFT uh, membership in the AFT, the larger national teachers union, which is run by the, the Clinton bosom buddy, Randy Weinstein. Garden, who used to be the head of the UFT, we have a deeply uh, reactionary union nationally and locally that is in bed with capital. It is in bed with Wall Street, is in bed with all of the uh, forces that we are up against. And similarly, you have an insurgency in New York and you have in Chicago a more radicalized teachers union and a number of others around the country. Seattle comes to mind. We've seen victories won in Los Angeles. Angeles as well. And all of these sort of union or intra-union insurgencies certainly stand in solidarity with the comrades in Mexico. But to your point, how much tangible connection is there really? I mean, it's one thing to issue a statement in support of teachers in Oaxaca. It's another to organize buses, to get people there, to be involved on the ground. And so the the kind of resistance you're talking about, it's partially there, but it's maybe just in, a, in an embryonic form. Well, I think we're definitely at that stage right now. Um, it's kind of, uh, I mean my utopic vision is we're, we're looking at, you know, a resurgent left, you know, the, the ideas are out there. People are discussing them again. As you pointed out, there's rank and file movements against kind of the stagnant decaying bureaucracy of the, the old labor movement that allowed itself to be completely co-opted by centers of power. And with those movements, as they start to see that they share this struggle that, you know, this privatization of education is not just something going on in the United States, it's going on in Mexico. And, and by connecting themselves, and like, I think a beautiful point you made, right? Getting on buses and going down to Oaxaca, you know, stand at the barricades with your fellow workers. And then by doing so, also begin to break this idea 
that has allowed people like Trump to kind of grow, right? Is that, you know, the working class has been kind of co-opted by xenophobic, you know, reaction and stuff. No, 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 no. Here's a chance where the working class can begin to develop international solidarity. We bring that international solidarity back. We also get to break then the idea that the Dems have a hold on multiculturalism, on this idea that we can have pluralistic societies, that we can have internationalism again. And so, you know, that's a hope, right? I mean, we see some of it happening. I mean, I don't see too much, but some of it's developing as an embryonic state, as you said. <laughs> yeah, well, we can hope so. Um, the other question I want to bring up here, and I think it's it, it's relevant to, to this particular uh, part of the conversation, and it's it's really a genuinely a question to what extent, based on your research, I know you were just in Mexico recently, to what extent are there connections between some of the uh, resistance, that the, the communities that are putting up resistance in Mexico with those uh, similar communities that are putting up resistance in other parts of Latin America? For instance, in Honduras, where we have a deeply uh, 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 right-wing government that is backed by the United States, Hillary Clinton, of course, playing a central role in the coup in 2009, that government is uh, involved in vicious murderous repression of indigenous communities, of peasant communities, especially those that are in prime real estate territory along the Caribbean coastline. Uh, similarly, we've seen in El Salvador deep repression against activists, particularly unionists, around uh, issues like the privatization of their public utilities. We see in, in other parts of Latin America as well. So I'm wondering, do we, do we have any evidence of solidarity networks emerging within Latin America and within Central America be, uh, between Mexico and some of these other countries? I mean, we've seen certain actions, right? So the recent Caravan for Peace that uh, Laura was on is, is one of these actions. There's usually, like you say, you know, um, communiques that go out, but I haven't witnessed personally beyond the normal kind of international civil society, say, going to pay respects to the Zapatistas and participate in La Escualita. Uh, beyond those kinds of actions, much yet. I think it's growing. I think there's an idea, but we still haven't reached, you know, Che's dream of a united Mesoamerica. And that's, that's still far off. And well. it's going to require a lot of work, I think, on the part of activists to begin reaching out to each other, to not stay within their groupsicles, but to be continuously in a really bad way, to, networking. I mean, let's co-opt that word from the business community. You know, the activists have to start networking with each other, recognizing the connections between these struggles. So the elements are in place, but I don't think that they've been leveraged yet, not, not in the least. Right. Well, you know, we saw we, we saw a little bit of an upsurge in in focus on some of these issues with the assassination of Berta Cáceres a, a, a couple of months ago. And, you know, it's gotten some play, you know, on the left here in the U.S. And uh, obviously because it has implications uh, with the presidential election and Hillary Clinton and all of the rest of that. So there 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 have been some incidents that really have made sort of international headlines. But, yeah, I mean, Without the creation of real, um, honest-to-God, international solidarity networks, solidarity meaning action rather than just words, uh, unfortunately, then what we're looking at is what we're so often faced with on the left, disparate groups working at their own, uh, you know, their, their own localized issues, their own localized agendas without broadening the scope and creating a cohesive internationalized resistance. Yeah, I mean, think about it this way, you know, what have you what have you seen personally about the CNT in terms of uh, American media so far? Exactly. That's that's precisely my point. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And you're spot on with it, because, I mean, if you can't get the corporate media to notice, and that means we haven't done our job. Right. That means that uh, the powers that be still don't even care enough to to pay attention to the fact that eight people were murdered by the federal police in in Nochichlan, Oaxaca. So, yeah, that, that's, I think, really harming us because we need those solidarity networks in place. And they should have already been in place, actually, from 
all of the actions that occurred around the 43 students here in the United States. And I think part of the reason why the internationalism doesn't grow is, is these groupsicles, this idea basically that these movements were restricted largely to uh, Latino, Latina communities here in the United States and didn't, you know, branch out to other communities. So, you know, when you heard about the 43 students, at least in my household, it's because Univision was on. But if we put on anything else, you know, not a peep. And that's the same thing now. Uh, so how, how do we go about building international solidarity networks that can become institutionalized, you know, crystallizes a part that we can call upon quite readily to mobilize. So you know, this is June 19th that these eight people were murdered. We still have had no peep, you know, other than what is the, the media has been fawning over the Tres Amigos conference. So Justin Trudeau, Barack Obama, and, and Enrique Peña Nieto, you know, doing a bad handshake. You know, that's that's what they've been focused on while these teachers are getting assaulted and repressed in, in Mexico. And imagine, imagine, this is what I've been thinking about a lot. Imagine if that was Venezuela, right? Imagine if the Venezuelan government had sent in, you know, hundreds of troops armed to the teeth, or not troops, police armed to the teeth, you know, killed eight people, harmed another 23, hospitalized several others, you know, how quickly would that reaction have been? Oh, we know exactly what would happen. They would be doing what they're already doing. They'd be calling for intervention. They'd be calling for the removal of the government and God knows what else. Yeah. And so since this is, you know, technically an official ally of the, the United States, Mexico, um, the media is not going to act in that way at all because they're pursuing U.S. backed economic policy. They're pursuing U.S. backed immigration policy. Right. We send them tons of money and part of that money gets used to to harm and commit human rights abuses against Central Americans coming up from Honduras, from Guatemala, from El Salvador. And the reason why they don't even have to make a peep is because there is no solidarity network. No one's barely talking about it except in the alternative press. So the real news has been good about publishing stuff about it. Uh, Counterpunch has put out some articles. Uh, Jacobin put out one. But basically, you know, even then it's kind of moot. And, you know, people aren't making the direct connection as they should be. That you know, Chicago teachers that have been hardline radical, you know, fighting back against Rahm Emanuel and his insane school closure program should be standing in solidarity, sending a bus down to Oaxaca right now. Because also, if you put some American bodies on the line, that reduces the ability of the Mexican government to repress its own citizens. You know, because the moment that Americans start dying or get injured, then the American government actually has to say something. That's right. That's that was what we did in Nicaragua in the eighties, right? Wasn't that the whole thing? Yep, yep, yep. And there was also the um, the movement. I know that Kathy Kelly was involved with the Human Shields program going to Iraq in the early nineties. Yeah, which these are brilliant ideas, and I mean, and myself included. You know, how could I organize, say, Faculty Forward here in North Carolina, which has been fighting for union rights for for college uh, faculty for adjuncts, organize them to get on a bus and go down to Mexico? Yeah, <laughs> would they be open to the idea? Most people, you know, not not typically open to the idea. Yeah, that's right. Um, well. In the time that we have remaining, I, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk briefly, if we could, about uh, an interesting piece that that um, that you had written for Counterpunch. I guess it was about a week ago now, or whenever that was. Um, although now that people are listening to it, it's probably a couple of weeks ago. Um, tell me a little bit about um, sort of what you were what you were arguing. Well, let me put it this way. We are being, as we all predicted, as, as, as Jeff Sinclair and I said multiple times the first time he was on this show and then again last time, we all knew that this moment was coming, right? That the Bernie Sanders thing was going to go bust or it was going to fall flat and that the liberals across the spectrum all over the country would begin badgering all of us to be supporting Hillary Clinton because big bad Donald Trump and um, you know his racism and all of the rest of that. Now, you push back a little bit against this idea of lesser evil voting, and and it kind of brought you up against um, some major figures on the left, including one of your heroes. Tell me a little bit about what happened. Well, uh, basically, uh, John Hale, Hall, um, 
don't know exactly how to pronounce his last name, uh, along with Chomsky, and Chomsky seems to be very much the silent partner in it, you know, put out this thing about lesser evil voting. So they called, you know, the strategy for lesser evil voting. And, you know, I mean, I can understand, you know, why some people would try and enact it. You know, that's fine. But it was the whole tone of uh, that they were taking with it, that everybody that didn't do lesser evil voting was following what they call the politics of witness and were basically sacrificing people to their principles. And I thought that that was slightly ludicrous. One, because I don't see this as a lesser and more thing. I, think I see this much more as a cause and effect, right? I mean, the more that you bring about neoliberal policies, so the cause, right, which were implemented primarily by Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan um, and then solidified over these past uh, 16 years uh, post-Clinton, is the, is the terrain in which something like a Trump could arrive. You know, that's the terrain because you, you have all of these people who have been kind of dejected by the system. So some of that population was sent into the prisons, right? That, so largely the black and brown populations in this country were sent to the prisons once those jobs dried up. And then the rest of them were allowed to kind of just stew. So the white workers that were dejected by this, the, the deindustrialization of the Northeast and so on, um, they were kind of left to stew with their anger and blame immigrants. And that's who they were told to blame. And not just by the Republicans. I mean, the Democrats leveraged that too. Actually, even Sanders used to utilize that economic nationalist rhetoric against immigrants. But, you know, toned that down a lot, thankfully, when he was making his campaign this time around. So, so when we think about, you know, why I'm going to write something against lesser evil voting, why I think that strategy is bogus, it's because they're blackmailing us, really. They're saying that since we won't vote for Hillary, us people uh, that say never her, uh, we're going to cause more pain. Uh, and, you know, what we can do maybe hopefully is what stave off another four years. Uh, what's already apparently right in front of us, the Oompa Loompa who's raging all around the, the country. And what happens when somebody who actually has an ideology, right? Because it's not very clear that, that Trump has anything other than a Facebook that he's, you know, going around and picking up conspiracies all over the place. That's all it seems to really be. Uh, what happens when somebody that's on the alt-right that's, you know, you know, prim and proper gets the stage? Because then we did another four years of Hillary with these poor policies that have just left everybody in the dust. Wages are stagnant. Unemployment still remains the real number, U6, around 10%. You know, people aren't doing well in the country. Most people do not even have $1,000 in a savings account to deal with an emergency. And... That's what we're told, to let limp on a little bit longer in the hopes that somehow the left gets its act together and, and organizes. But how's it going to do that when it really seems to believe that our dead end is the Democratic Party and, and maybe one day that'll break to the left a little bit more? No, it's, 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 it's totally insane. I, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, I wanted to throw in the F word there and... Um, you know, and and I don't necessarily mean the f u c k word. I mean the f a s c i s m word because I think that is important as well. Look, the reality is, and I've said this a million times, and probably people who listen to me and 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 follow me on social media are probably tired of hearing this, but I'll, I'll say it again: Trump himself does not scare me. The movement that has congealed around Trump, that scares me. And the reason it scares me is not because of what it might do now, but where it might go when a real fascist leader emerges. And believe me, they are there. They are out there right now in some state legislature somewhere in Michigan or in Alabama or in Arizona somewhere. There's a state senator or a congressperson or a local official who's watching Trump, who's supporting Trump, but is taking notes. And four or eight or 12 or 16 years from now, what is that movement going to become? Because when Trump leaves the stage... 
that movement stays. At the same time, the very notion that staving off that movement and fighting that movement is actually going to be attained and successfully achieved by supporting the most vicious, warmongering Wall Street puppet that we could probably ever see come out of the Democratic Party. This is an insane and politically and morally bankrupt strategy. The only strategy, as far as I'm concerned, is opposing both sides of this false choice, both sides of this absolutely insane dichotomy that we have with militant direct action and local organizing with practical goals to uh, affect real change in communities. That's what the left needs to be doing. And this completely discredited crap about picking the lesser evil, and especially because Chomsky told us to, I, I, I cannot abide. Well, and it always makes me sad, right? Um, you know, the reason why I, you know, I find myself very hard-lined about this is because I've, I've read these, these books that this man wrote, you know, you know, Third World Fascism or, you know, Necessary Illusions, you know, reading these and understanding that, you know, the system's corrupt at its core. You know, it, it is the rot. You know, and so by voting for the rot, by voting for the decay, you know, what do we expect to come out of it? And and I wonder, you know, since we talked about, say, international solidarity, we've talked about, you know, organizing communities, you know, that's that's where it's going to be at. And how much energy do you suck out of that every time we, we end up in this quadrennial, you know, argument? What are we doing again? Now, here's the left again at each other's throat over Hillary. That's what we're fighting over now. Yeah, and basically. We're insulting each other, and you know what I got called—an idiot, a lunatic, a sociopath. No, I, I much doubt that I'm any of those things. I'm just appalled by Hillary. I'm appalled by somebody that can harm you know people I love in, in other countries. You know, this is somebody that that has stated during the New York Daily News interview with her that she would expand Plan Colombia style programs, you know, policies around around Central and South America. Well, what does that mean? That means further militarization. This is a person who, with her husband, right, she wasn't really in power, but supported the policy of NAFTA, which pushed the immigration and then also the militarization of the border. And the fact that I know that the border was militarized during the 90s is because Chomsky used to state that that's when it did get militarized. He used to have this thing where he would state, oh, you know, the border was largely porous, which was in many ways correct. Uh, running up to this, and then once you get NAFTA, once you get the the free movement of capital and goods across the border, that then we shut down the free movement of human beings. So they want us to vote for the people that literally produce the policies that we know have been highly destructive in Central and South America, because of a bogeyman that you know, it, as you pointed out incorrectly. It isn't the one to be scared of. It's the people that he's emboldening and that got to be emboldened because. We haven't dealt with any of the contradictions of our system at the moment. I mean, we're just floundering and we're damned, what did I say? Damned if you do, damned if you don't, and no less damned or a situation on the horizon. Yeah, well, you know, ultimately, ultimately, I, I think back to Sonic Youth and uh, that famous, that famous track, Kill Your Idols. You know what I'm <laughs> saying? Like, I'm not suggesting that Chomsky's worthless, not by a long shot. I have a, more than a dozen of his books on my shelf right now. I've read tons of Chomsky. I've followed him since I was, like, a teenager and whatever, but... At the end of the day, uh, we are talking about the future, right? And Chomsky does not, and and his little, you know, acolyte, you know, who's leeching off of his success or whatever, you know, that what what they don't really talk about, what they don't really have a vision for, is actual organizing and the creation of real alternatives that does not exist in the sort of Chomskyan lesser evil whatever. And I know I'm picking on Chomsky, but that's because he's a giant on the left and he's a public figure and he needs to be held to account for this complete bullshit that he peddles every four years. You know, and that's that's the issue, right? Is if a scion of the left, right, this individual that has an ability to direct people and their opinions, um, doesn't 
come out and advocate something like you and St. Clair had advocated in y'all's interview of like a Green Panther Party, then, you know, that idea doesn't really get play. And so that's what should be being advocated. And he's advocated it on these abstract levels. But, you know, how about saying in Boston, I'm Noam Chomsky, I'm going to take, you know, the my my time and my power and help to open up, say, community centers so that those can begin to be these institutional parts of a movement. Like in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, you know, Chukwe Lumumba developed a movement in Jackson, Mississippi with cooperative, uh, Cooperation Jackson that is able to produce a community center that can now be leveraged as a political institution within that community. You know, those ideas, if Chomsky was putting those out and all the time, that could serve as like a, a jumping board. And not just him, but many on the left that have this establishment power that, you know, seem to fail us so much because of the fact that they're in the establishment. You know, that, that seems to be actually the big issue, that people become a part of the establishment, have to maintain some level of, you know, I guess, what would you say? Like, they... They allow the establishment to run rampant in order to have that access. Access. Yep. You know, and and that's that's poor for the rest of us because we know that Chomsky in no way supports Clinton beyond saying that, oh, she's less bad than Trump. But that's not an argument. And then if you're not really concerned with the argument, why sit there and begin to, you know, berate other people as um, Hall has done uh, for not wanting to follow that? So it's either not important and therefore the quadrennial circus isn't important or it's so damn important that people who don't support it are now the lunatic sociopathic left. You, know, you can't have it both ways. I, and I think that we need uh, at some moment in time to develop a new guard. And we have seen this new guard arising. You know, Black Lives Matter is the development of a new guard. Occupy is the development of a new guard. These are the developments that are going to spur forward movements into the future it's the issue is how do we get them to coalesce and once again that's what you know establishment figures if they were worth their salt in terms of radical politics would be saying right now it's like okay the bernie and bust is busted um now how do y'all develop you know a new coalition you all all y'all people who said that this this was bs that the the capitalist class had taken over that the one percent was destroying us that we we need a, a reorientation of our society. Why go into the Democratic Party? Let's have a three-way race. Why don't you take Kashama Sawant's idea? You know, let's have a three-way race, and whoever gets to win gets to win. Socialism, capitalism, fascism. Let's fight it out. Yeah. Well, uh, socialism, capitalism, and fascism fighting it out sounds like a uh, recipe for war. And if that's the kind of war we're talking about, well, then by God, I'm ready. Well, I mean, the point is at this moment, what do we, what do we have to lose? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, on 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 that sour note, I'm gonna have to end it there. Um, but I do I do appreciate you coming on the show, uh, listeners. You, you definitely need to be reading Andrew's work. Um, Andrew Smolsky, his stuff is in Counterpunch regularly. It's in the Counterpunch magazine regularly. Uh, follow him there. Uh, Andy, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Eric. It was a great time. Lis- listeners, thank you as always, and I will speak to you again next week. 